I hope all of you and your trees and playgrounds have survived the storm. It has kind of wreaked havoc all around us, and I, I say that because I want to uh, just affirm the guys who work behind the scenes to put our service and all those things together. Uh, a lot of our team spent most of all of Saturday working out a backup plan because we didn't have power. We didn't know if we would be able to gather here this morning or not, and then the power came back on, and then our team had to show up early this morning and make sure all of our sound works and do all that kind of stuff behind the scenes. And I'm just thankful for a church of diversity of gifts that serves the body. And they don't do it for applause. They don't do it for recognition. They do it unto the Lord. And I'm just thankful to be part of a church like that. And as we get to stand here and sing and to worship the Lord, that is facilitated by those guys. So um, for all of you who kind of went the extra mile, if you will, this weekend, thank you very much for serving your church and serving the Lord. It is greatly appreciated. We are continuing our study here in 1 Corinthians. We started last week, someone joked, they said, well, you might not be the longest-winded preacher we have, but you're the first person to just in the middle say, and we're going to have a part two next week. So I am guilty of that. We've done that. We're going to continue our discussion around the issue of unity. And I'm excited about that this morning, and we're going to really spend most of our time there. The plan is to Uh, talk about a little about sexual immorality within the context of unity. Uh, In light of everything that has happened in our country this week, we're going to take some more time and just kind of camp there on unity a little bit longer. I think it's relevant. I think it's powerful. I think it is a priority. And so I'm excited to dive back into 1 Corinthians, dive back into God's Word and worship and be challenged by the proclamation of of his revelation. That's an exciting thing. I want to remind us of those three things I told you to keep in mind about the church at Corinth. First, they were a redeemed community of authentic Jesus followers. They were saints. We saw that in our sermon last week. Second, they were individuals, yet they were one body. They were the church. They were brought together and collectively the bride of Christ. Man, I love that song we get to sing. They are the bride of Christ. Individuals, diverse, but they are one body. Third, they were immature. They were divided and worldly. They had issues. And like us, We too have issues. It's good to know that you can still be a beautifully redeemed child of God and still have issues. We still have issues. And they too had issues. And that's what set up the context for our sermon series for the next few weeks. We're not going to have time to be able to go verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, but we can see these larger themes. And the theme that we are examining over the next few weeks are some of the issues that face the church at Corinth. And the first issue that Paul begins to unpack and he begins to speak and to write to them about is the issue of unity. And again, last week, we realized that unity is important not just because it's a champion for morale. It's, hey, if we just get together, we can do this. We realize that unity is important Because unity is anchored in who God is. 
God is one. Unity is important because it is anchored in who we are as image bearers. We bear the very image of God. And we have been set apart through the gospel to be one people. One God redeeming one people and giving them one mission. And so we realize that we cannot be like Jesus and be divided. God is not divided. He has not divided us as people. He is one and He has set us apart to be one. And so we begin to look last week at seven commands. Seven commands that overcome division and establish unity. The first thing that we saw is we were to speak as one. The body of Christ, it doesn't mean that we've all memorized the same terminology, but it means we speak in the same direction, the same pursuit. We speak from the same absolute foundation. We speak through the lens of God's revelation. We speak through the lens of the gospel. Second, we think as one. We think as one. We share the same worldview. We share the same lens in which we see all of God's creation, including ourselves. Third, we purpose as one. In other words, yes, we believe the same thing, and if we believe it is true, then we have a certain resolve in us, a certain pursuit of that truth. And so we pursue the same things. We purpose as one. We recognize that we grow as one. We saw that the church cannot experience unity and immaturity because unity is self-sacrificing. Unity says that I live my life to honor the Lord and to serve Him by building up His body. So my life is focused on mutual edification. That's sacrificing. And not just sacrificing, I don't sin anymore. But it's also sacrificing our freedoms. And the very freedoms we may even have in the gospel, in Christ, for the sake of the building up of the body. This will be an issue we'll see in Corinth and we'll deal with in a few weeks. This was a struggle for them. Again, anchored in their immaturity. And so we recognize that as unity will happen, it will happen because the church will mature and grow as one. And lastly, we close by recognizing that the church is to abide as one. Abide as one. And I want to pick back up here, and I want us to begin this morning by recognizing three core truths around this idea of abiding. And we're going to look at these truths through our study here in 1 Corinthians, but also we're going to go back even into Colossians. Colossians is a study we've done as a church right before we began Corinthians. And I want you to see just in those books that we're familiar with that we've studied recently, just in those two letters from Paul, this emphasis on abide and what that looks like. First, we are God's temple. In Christ Jesus, through saving faith, We are God's temple. We have position in Him. We are good, valuable, and worthwhile because God's Spirit dwells in us. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Understanding the context, meaning the house in which God indwells. Where he makes his presence known. It is where God resides in his revelation to man. In you, in me as believers, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Listen, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple holy, sanctified, set apart, perfect, perfect. You are that. Listen, not because of your works, not because of what you have done, but because what God has done in you and has promised to do in you. He has declared you justified before the Father. You stand before God as righteous and as holy as God himself, not because it is you, but because it is Christ who stands in your place. And so we have a position and we can rest knowing that we abide in Christ, that God is indwelling us, that we are his temple. It's important. Second, it is equally important that we recognize that we do nothing, nothing good or valuable or worthwhile apart from God. So God doesn't do 99% and you do one. There is nothing good or valuable or worthwhile that comes from you and adds to the righteousness of God, that adds to the standard of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul writes, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. They're nothing. Whatever they did, nothing. It made no difference in and of themselves. Listen, but only God who gives the growth. It's just God. And if that is a reality in our minds, then we will pursue that God. We will pursue His will. We will pursue Him. We will pursue the things that are above. Why? Because that is the source of everything that is good, of everything that is valuable, of everything that is worthwhile. And we recognize that anything apart from Him is meaningless. And so Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, in the same thought, listen, in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you're a temple, if God indwells you through His Spirit, if you place saving faith in Jesus, listen, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Everything you have is hidden, is anchored in Him. 
We pursue Him. It's part of what abiding means. Yes, we rest in the position, but resting in the position acknowledges that we are resting in truth. And if we believe it and hold it as true, then we must pursue Him. We pursue Him. And even in that pursuit, it is powered by the sanctifying work of God in us. We know that. But we pursue Him. We long for Him. Why? Because He is the source of all value. Because He and He alone is God. And so if we believe that, we recognize that I can do nothing on my own then I will set my mind on the things that are above. I will set my heart in a pursuit of Him. So recognizing abiding is recognizing a position and a pursuit and how those things work together. But the third thing I want you to see about abiding is that we abide as one body. As one body. Paul continues in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, and he says, here, here, in this abiding relationship with Jesus, here in what we are talking about, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See, in Christ there is no division. In an eternal sense, there are only two groups of people. There is a family of Adam, those born into sin, separated from God. And there is the family of God that offers adoption out of the family of of Adam into the family of God through his son Jesus. That's it. That's it. There's no slave. There's no free. There's no ethnicity. Listen, there's no nation There is in Christ or not. That's it. And for those of us, listen, who are in Christ, there is no division. So verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. That's an important phrase. Bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. One body. We abide in Christ together. That was the first verse we looked at last week. And the saints at Corinth, Paul tells them that you were called to be saints together. Together. That's a profound thought and not something we should just read over quickly. Because unity is not just a position, it is a pursuit. It is a pursuit of what has been declared to be. We have been declared the bride of Christ. We have been declared one body under one God given one mission. But it is a hard and a costly pursuit for us today. Unity is not an isolated fight. Rather, the work of the body's many members to live as one 
See, we cannot affirm the gospel and divide the body. We cannot affirm the gospel and divide the body. Unity is sacrificial and absolute, but listen, it is not blind inclusivity. Unity is transformational. Paul writes, do not be conformed, be transformed. We often think that unity is just inclusivity. It is not. It is a transformation of mind and of pursuit underneath the truth of God. And see, the unity in Corinth was being threatened, and as a result, so was the body of Christ. And we will pick up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to see a specific example of one of those ways that unity was being threatened in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm telling you to separate, but I'm not telling you to separate from unbelievers, from people who don't profess to know Jesus. You'd have to leave the world to get away from that. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who calls themselves a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's saying, what do I have to do with judging the world? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, if we are going to have unity that is taught in Scripture... We will judge as one. We will judge as one. We will judge those inside the church who profess to be Christ, or profess to be Christians. If they profess to be Christ, we better judge them too. Of those who profess to be Christians. Listen, unity requires judgment. Why? Because unity is not unconditional acceptance. It is not unconditional tolerance. It is not unconditional inclusivity. Unity is a transformation to one mission under one God. Unity calls for admonishment. It calls for correction. It even calls for brotherly removal. See, Paul says, judge not the unbelievers by their morality and their actions. Instead, you're to be lightened to the world. But Paul says, judge the Christian by the direction of their pursuit. See, when the Christian boldly and openly chooses to pursue sin, unwilling to heed the instructions from God's Word and the leadership of the church, they are choosing to go a direction that is unfitting for the body of Christ. I'm not saying, listen, the Christian is perfect. I'm saying when the Christian refuses to accept the correction 
in the direction of the body. And they openly and boldly say, no, I will pursue sin. I don't care about what you or the word of God has to say to me. That person is to be removed. Remove him from the gathering, the corporate setting of the church. But Paul goes further and he also says to remove him from your associations. Don't even eat with him. This isn't the corporate connection to the church. This is for you, the individual. Those people who claim to be Christians, who you and the church has gone to and called them to repent, and yet they still choose their open pursuit of sin. We're not to associate with those people. And see, this is a hard teaching for us to believe because it's so counter to our culture because we so believe that it's all about relationships and we trump relationship over revelation. But listen, God's word tells us the most loving and helpful thing we can do for them is to remove them that way they might be reconciled. That's hard for us because it's not the natural way of our thinking within our culture. Let me give you some modern examples really quick. An unbeliever who is living in a homosexual lifestyle is to be pursued by the church both corporately and individually. Love compels the church to pursue them, to befriend them, to associate with them in order that the gospel may be proclaimed. A professing Christian who is boldly and unrepentant living A homosexual lifestyle is to be shunned by the church. Corporately and individually. Because love compels the church to discipline and remove them until repentance and reconciliation can happen. Let me give you another example. An unbeliever openly engages in adultery. The church is to love them Reach out to them, associate with them, pursue them with the love of the gospel. A professing Christian who is boldly and unrepentantly pursuing adultery is to be shunned by the church, both corporately and individually, because love compels the church to discipline and remove them. See, these are modern examples of what Paul is saying here in Corinth. In a few verses before this, Paul gives a specific example that's happened in Corinth with a man and his stepmother. Same thing, same thought. But Paul goes on in this list and he talks about those in greed, those in adultery, those who are a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. You say, well, Daniel, removing someone from the church and not associating with them, that doesn't happen a lot at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. And frankly, I don't think that really happens much in churches anywhere. That's true. But I think we must ask ourselves, does that not happen because we do not have believers who are living in open rebellion and sin? Or does that not happen because we do not trust the teaching of Scripture to lead life change in those individuals? See, we even struggle with the step before that, which is to admonish and to correct and call the brother in sin into just repentance. Nonetheless, when they reject that call and they reject that love, that embrace, that admonishment, that correction, what we do with them then? See, unity requires us to judge 
one another. But we cannot forget the aim, the aim of such judgment, the aim of removal is always restoration. Listen, Paul says that in verse 5. He says, are you to deliver this man to Satan? You are to deliver this man to Satan. In other words, watch this. Get him out of the church. Get him into the world. Or the destruction of his flesh. That sounds harsh. Listen to why. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I think Paul says that even more clearly as he's writing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Exact same case, similar charge. Paul says in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, if anyone does not follow the commands of Scripture, listen, take note of that person. In other words, judge them. Take note of that. And have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Again, that sounds harsh, but listen to the reason. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. For some of us, it's so hard to recognize that removing someone from our association, from our fellowship, from our gathering, could be to love them as a brother. It is because we struggle with discipline. We struggle with admonishment. And that is what we are talking about here. It reminds me of the old saying I used to hear a lot from my mom. This hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. When we talk about discipline, we are not talking about something that's mean-spirited. When I discipline my child, it kills me. I hate it. I don't like it. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. Nevertheless, it is the most loving and biblical thing we can do for a believer who is living in bold, unrepentant sin in opposition to the teachings of Scripture and the leadership of the local church. And it is a command both to the gathering, the assembly of the local church, and also to the individual. And I understand that it is counter-cultural. But unity is when the body of Christ speaks the same central absolutes in the same mind and judgment in pursuit of the same God in protection of its unity. Not in just, again, blind inclusivity, but it's unity around the gospel. It's unity about, around being the one body, around being the bride of Christ. You say, how can we remove somebody how can something go that way and that be brotherly love listen it is because the one God who established and created us and loves us more than we can define the word has told us it is the most effective way to love them that they might be restored to what they should be and it's clear in 2nd Thessalonians it's clear here in 1st Corinthians so we judge one another so here's a few action items for us Seek out discipline and admonishment. You'll have to seek it out for yourself. Because frankly, as a culture, we're almost afraid to admonish one another. 
you'll have to build it into your relationships. You're going to have to seek it out. You're going to have to get those brothers and sisters around you who love you enough when they see sin creeping into your life, they will with love say, I'm worried about you. What's going on? You need to repent. Accept discipline and repent. When discipline comes your way, accept it. Don't feel judged and unloved and ridiculed. Think about you as a parent. You long for your children to accept your discipline. Why? Because you bring a level of wisdom and insight. You love them, you care about them, you want them to go a certain direction. How much more is the Word of God that for us? Next, admonish the idle brothers and sisters around you. Be bold enough to be faithful to the teachings of God's words. Again, not in a mean-spirited, legalistic way, but in a motive of love. And do not forget that we are brothers and sisters. We are not one another's enemies. We do not fight a battle against flesh and blood. We fight a battle against, listen, spiritual powers. We move on to our next section in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent? To try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such a case, if there's a dispute among you, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between two brothers? But brother goes to the law against brother and before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. See, this work of unity starts to get hard. It gets tough. And what we recognize, lastly, is that we must submit as one. The saints must submit as one and submit to the leadership of Scripture that has set up and established the church and the leadership of the church. So unity will submit to the leadership within. They will take their problems to the church. They'll take their problems to those who will see the world through the lens of Scripture. See, unbelievers do not and are not pursuing the one true God. They are missing the core foundation for chief wisdom. And so a few action items. Trust the scriptures and the leadership God has appointed through them with your disputes. 
with your disagreement, with your division. Second application, bring your disputes to them. One of the beautiful things about Tri-Cities Baptist Church, I think it's an incredible biblical thing, is we have a number of elders. You're not just bringing your dispute to one. There's a plurality of godly men who pray for you, love you, and want to walk beside of you, helping not give you their opinion, but helping you know the scriptures and how they may apply into your life. Bring your disputes to them. Follow their counsel. Follow their counsel. Finally, be edifying and not right. I learned that early on in marriage. Um, Sometimes it's not edifying to be right. By the way, I said I learned that. I really need to say I'm trying to learn that. Um, It's it's a struggle for me. Uh, Sometimes being right isn't edifying. doesn't mean I'm lying. It doesn't mean I'm going to be dishonest. But it means I recognize the purpose of truth is to build up the body, is to build one another up. Be edifying in your interaction with one another. See, like pride, unity is to the Christian life. It's hard to unpack. It's hard to summarize in just, you know, two weeks. But I want you to see that it is vitally important to the Christian life. Today, in our country, there is a dispute among us that should not be so. It just shouldn't be so. As an elder and as a leader, I want to give you some biblical wisdom and direction that gets to the root of some of these issues. But I want to first take you back to Colossians 3 and read one more time to you that here, verse 11, in this abiding relationship with Jesus, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one another has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Listen, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. There is no room for racial division in the church. No room. Not a sliver. And I want to talk about this for a few moments but I want to make sure you understand what I'm speaking to I'm not talking about lawlessness I'm not talking about government authority I'm not talking about police authority I'm talking about unity and the condition of man by the way all those things are results of the condition of man but I want to be clear I am speaking to you this morning. A church in East Tennessee that is 98% white. And I am trusting that the fellow pastors around this country will speak to their congregations accordingly. 
And I'm often reminded when my little girl says, but dad, he did. I said, listen, I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to you. Church, this morning I want to talk to you and I want you to know that our minority brothers and sisters are hurting. They're hurting. And we, as white people, have been privileged with a lot of resources, opportunities, and favor. Listen, in our church, and we have a responsibility to use our privilege to serve and to love those who are oppressed. Let me give you an example before we get going. My daughter will grow up in a country that will try with everything that it has to exploit her sexually. From everything she sees to everything that she hears. She will battle with her identity, definition of beauty, community, relationships. She will see boys and men look at her differently. And she will never know life without those stares or those cutting insults or those expectations. What do I want from the church in that? I want the church to understand. I want the church to pray with me. I want the church to help me. I know they can't fix the brokenness of the culture. I want them to walk through it with me. I don't want them to tell me and other dads that it's just in my head, that it's not as bad as it could be. I don't want them to hide and sit there quietly because it's not their issue. I want brotherhood and sisterhood to deal with this thing that will oppress my daughter. See, many in my country and our culture still hold a prejudice, a bias, a racism that is sinful and broken and oppresses the image bearers and the brothers and sisters in Christ that do not look like them. I want to give you some ways to act. To act. First, the A, affirm the reality of racial oppression. Affirm its presence and impact. Peel back the onion and really see it for what it is. Listen, racism isn't rooted in slavery. Slavery was rooted in racism. In other words, racism isn't just about civil rights. If you're an American citizen, you can vote, you can be president, you can do anything you want. You've got opportunities. We know that. Listen, I'm not defining racism as just civil rights. There is a passive racism that exists. It exists in many of us. It's that thought that if you're walking out of the mall at night and a kid walks up to you and It's a white kid wearing a hoodie. You don't think much of it, but if that kid's skin color is a little different, you feel a little more frightened. There's a bias and a prejudice in that. There's a bias and a prejudice when a young girl brings home her boyfriend or her fiancé and he's not the same color as mom and dad. There's a bias and there's a prejudice and there's a racism in that. Listen, and what we must understand is fathers and mothers have to talk to their children about interactions with police and stares in a retail store and just different expectations and an ingrained fear and bias that's very passive but real around them that I don't have to talk to my daughter about. That's real. It's there. And our brothers and sisters in the faith need to know. We can't fix all that, but we're there with you. We recognize it. We see it. 
We need to affirm that racism is an oppressive, oppressive act against minorities in our culture. We need to affirm that racism is a sin against God. It is the rejection that He created man and woman in His image. Listen, in His image. He didn't just create a certain color in His image. He created them all in His image. Listen, it is a rejection of the gospel. Jesus didn't pay more for white-skinned people on a cross than He paid for somebody else. He didn't. It is a rejection of the one body, His church, that we are brothers and sisters, joint heirs. Listen, in an eternal sense, every brother and sister you have, whether they live in the lowest of slums in the world, regardless of the color of their skin, listen, regardless of the amount of money in their bank account, every brother and sister in Christ has equal value and economic standing in the kingdom of God. A change the way we live and what we affirm. Affirm that racism isn't an, is an issue destroying Christian unity. It is. It's destroying our unity. C, create racial reconciliation. Do so first by creating racial reconciliation in your home. Don't just expose your children to a different ethnicity or culture, tradition. Engage them. And teach them that engaging them is fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission calls us to go to the nations, to every ethnicity, every, every nation, every people. Engage them. Do practical things, meaningful things that communicate your understanding of the gospel. Parents, grandparents, tell your kids that you're supportive of them marrying someone of a different race and why. Tell them you're supportive and why. Because in Christ, there is neither black nor white. The song we used to sing, it's not very politically correct anymore, but he loves the children of this world, right? Red, yellow, black, and white. They're all his. And that is what we belong to. That's our nation. Those are our people. And as long as they are a faithful believer following Christ, listen, I am in approval because that is God's adopted son or daughter. Teach them these things. Stand up for these things. Use your privilege to serve the less privileged. Lead your family to risk against their bias. risk against your bias pray together mourn this week as we see our failures in this area and celebrate the successes that come around race make it a conversation in your home second create racial reconciliation among your friends and your co-workers step away or speak up when the conversation becomes a conversation that would hurt a brother and sister of another race. If they were talking about your daughter, your brother, your sister, would you sit there and let them say that? Stand up. Speak out. Model within the context of where you are. Lastly, create racial reconciliation in the community. Educate yourself. 
Educate yourself. Learn. Listen. Care. Serve. Fight through the awkwardness. Fight through the awkwardness. Create reconciliation within the church. It's one of the most segregated places in the U.S. It ought not to be that way. Why is it that way? It's that way just like in Corinth because our immaturity and preference and customs do not want to allow for such a shared experience. Count such, a things, count such things lost for a better goal. And lastly, T, take on the burden of being one people on one mission. Take on the burden that God made all men in his image. Take on the burden that racism is a sinful oppression of the blessing of God's design as an image bearer. Take on the burden that Jesus purchased all of God's children for the same price. Take on the burden that racism is a rejection of the gospel and the church. Take on the burden to pray for racial reconciliation with the church, with your family, with your co-workers. Take on the burden to weep and to mourn over racial division within the church. Take on the burden, listen, to fulfill the Great Commission that would compel us with the love of the gospel to go to the world. John Owen said this, I do verily believe that when God shall accomplish unity, it will be the effect of love and not the cause of love. It will proceed from love before it brings forth love. There is no room for racial division in the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Listen, we are one people under one God, given one mission. I'm going to ask the team to come on up, and I'm going to ask this time for you to bow your heads and join me in a time of prayer as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We just read, we are one body. Why are we one body? We are one body because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And he has commanded us to do this in remembrance of him in remembrance that he has shed his blood and given his life that we may be reconciled to be one body one beyond our preferences beyond our traditions beyond our culture beyond the color of our skin one body under one God beautifully redeemed beautifully reconciled beautifully adopted children of one God given one mission to proclaim the goodness of God to the world This morning, I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, our minds and our hearts might be open that the gospel calls us to be unified and to fight against any division that might creep into our midst. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts. Prepare our minds. We confess we are sinful and broken, Lord, but we do not want it to be our direction. 
And may we worship you this morning in the remembrance of the sacrifice of your son. And it's in his name we pray. In the name of Jesus.